one of the best things about the Christian life is the freedom we have. Freedom to rest, freedom to play, and especially freedom to eat. But are there times that we should limit our freedoms? For the sake of others, the Bible says that we should. Jeremy explains to us in the third part of our series, A Life of Grace. Welcome to Challenge. As we get started, I have a question for you, but before we do that, let me, uh, not that Audrey's prayer wasn't good, but let me pray again, Um, because I probably need it. Father, I uh, am very grateful for um, your kindness. God, anything that uh, any of us ever have that's worth sharing up here, uh, we we learn from you. And so, God, I pray that uh, what I say would really uh, make sense. I pray that it would more than make sense, but it would be desirable and preferable, and that these people would really begin to put into practice to the extent that it really lines up with what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, hey, so it's been an eventful evening already. Hopefully it won't be more eventful than it needs to be. Um, but as we get started here, I have a question for you guys to to turn to your partner next to you, turn to someone next to you and discuss for about two minutes. And the question is this, what kinds of things bring real meaning and real purpose and joy in your life? Um, you know, what are some snapshots of that for you, for people around you? What, what are the things that really bring joy and purpose and meaning? So take two minutes, turn to someone next to you. If you don't know them, introduce yourself and discuss that and then we'll come back. Now, I hope that that question kind of got the middle juices flowing. At least we kind of began to think about that. It's probably not a question you were thinking about at dinner time tonight, but hopefully you're thinking about it a little bit now. Um, you know, in Luke 9, verses 23 to 24, Jesus gives a statement, a very famous statement that would kind of give an answer to this question too. Although, <clears throat> as you'll see, we'll read in a second, it's not something that's very intuitive. It's pretty counterintuitive. In fact, it's probably not something you were thinking about very often in terms of what would really bring real joy uh, in your life. And, and this is what he says. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Now, honestly, doesn't that kind of sound pretty counterintuitive? I mean, and, and, and not only that, does it kind of sound pretty unattractive? Right? I mean, you're thinking, eh, I don't know about that. Because if we're being honest, I think if the way we tend to actually think and live, if we could put words in the mouth of Jesus, what we kind of hope he would say would be more something like this. You know, if anyone wants the good life, he must treat himself. And he must take up his freedoms daily and follow his heart. Whoever wants to save his life has to look out for himself. But whoever loses life for my sake is a sucker. You know, the reviled standard version of that. Um, right? I mean, isn't that kind of how we, we, tend to, we tend to think and we tend to live a lot of times? You know, if you're going to find real purpose and meaning and joy, then you better guard and you better exercise your freedoms to the hilt, right? You're an American. You know, that's what you do. And if you have to follow, and the only way you do it is you have to follow your heart. Why? That's the, that's the true center. And you have to look out for yourself and take care of number one, because who else will? right? But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, 
If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for me will save it. Now, guys, honestly, if that was some random person that just said that to you on the street, I'd say just disregard us, stupid, and move on. You know. But see, Jesus said this. You know, the same Jesus who predicted his death and resurrection and then pulled it off. And so, because he was God in flesh. And so when Jesus says something like that, I think it's something we ought to take a little bit more seriously. And yet still, honestly, when you look at this verse, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Nor does it seem possible, nor does it even really seem desirable, apart from one thing, and that being the grace of God. Now, as we're continuing this week, we're continuing a series that we've started uh, on the idea of grace, and we entitled it called A Life of Grace. And in week one, uh, Neil gave us a working definition of what grace is, and it's right up here. It says, grace is the provision of God through Christ that is available to us to fill the gaps in all areas we face, in all arenas we face. And this could be arenas such as, you know, how you come to Christ. It could be another arena later on of how you grow in Christ. And it could even be in an arena of, you know, how you begin to minister to other people and on and on and on, all the different arenas. And then last week, Eric uh, did a really good job where he said that, you know, when we receive the grace of God uh, through what Jesus did on the cross, our natural response, the natural response, the way we're going to respond to that grace of God is to obey everything that he told us to do. And by his grace, our old nature, when we were slaves to sin, it gets morphed into a new nature. Now you're a slave to righteousness. And by God's grace, we're able to really be trained up and live as godly people and live disciplined lives. And it takes us on a path of real blessing, a a path that we really become more like Christ and we're a blessing not only to ourselves, but a blessing to others. And it takes us off the path that we were on, which was a path headed straight for destruction and headed straight for lawlessness. And so this week, what I want to do is I want to expand a little bit more on where that path of naturally following the grace of God, where that path leads to. The natural response of obedience, what's the results of that? Now, what I want you to see is this, that living a life of grace really calls us to and really draws us to and even frees us to really limit our freedoms for the sake of others. Living a life of grace really calls us to and draws us to and even frees us to limit our freedoms for the sake of others. And so tonight, the the title of tonight's message is, you know, a life of grace Limiting my freedoms for the sake of others, in case you were wanting that for your own notes. Um, You know, as you look at many of the the references that we're going to talk about in this series or have talked about already on the grace of God, or if you ever study, you know, the topic of the grace of God uh, for yourself throughout the Bible, one of the things you're going to begin to see a commonality of is a lot of the main thoughts and writings on the grace of God come from the Apostle Paul. Um, Because Paul, you know, he really understood the grace of God. He wrote about it at length, he taught about it everywhere he went, and he really lived out of the grace of God. You see this throughout the book of Acts, which really records a lot of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And you see it all throughout the letters that he wrote, which really comprise most of the New Testament if you take away the Gospels. And so, I don't know about you, but as I begin to think about that, it begins to beg the question, why? Why was the topic of grace so foundational and so saturated in everything that Paul said and did? And taught. And well, the short answer, I think, is, is because Paul was a major recipient of God's grace. Paul was a major recipient of God's grace 
And he's never recovered since. It changed the whole course and the quality of his life. You see, the same Paul that many of you guys, maybe if you've grown up in church, you've learned much about the Apostle Paul, the same Paul that many of you guys, you know, look up to and admire and have learned from, that was not always who he was. In fact, in a letter to a a man named Timothy, who was a dear friend of Paul's and sort of a protege and a child of the faith of his, Paul wrote this about himself in 1 Timothy 1, verse 14 through 16. He says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, before Paul ever became a follower of Jesus, he was a persecutor of people who were followers of Jesus. He pursued Christians to arrest them. He pursued them to have them killed. And his whole goal was to just completely obliterate and shut out Christianity as a whole until he met Jesus and he experienced the grace of God. After that, everything changed. You know, he went from taking the lives of Christians to actively laying down his life so that other people could begin to know Jesus and experience his grace. And in Galatians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Galatia, um, Paul talks a lot about the grace of God in this book, primarily because there was a lot of false teachers that were trying to get the people in Galatia to put their trust in and to find, you know, figure out how to make the relationship with God right through something other than the grace of God. And so one of the most famous sentences Paul writes in Galatians, and probably I would say the thesis of the book of Galatians, is Galatians 2.21, where he said, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You know, what Paul is basically saying here, guys, is, guys, if you try to add on anything to the grace of God to you know, be made right or to, to justify yourself before God, you know, it's not going to work. And in fact, not only will it not work, you're going to nullify the grace of God. And it's as if you're saying, you know, what Jesus did was not enough. And not only that, but you're going to become re-enslaved to your old sins and you're going to become re-enslaved to your old traditions. And you were meant to be free as Christ intended. Just like that. Um, and then later in Galatians, Paul talks about what I call the so then what? You know, so then what? Great, you're saved by grace through faith. That's amazing, praise God. So then what? What do you do with this newfound freedom? You know, whatever you want? You know, do, do, we, do we chase after any dream or desire we have without fear of consequence to us or other people because we have the grace of God now? Well, listen to what Paul said in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Paul knew that as the recipients of the grace of God, we we are really set free from the chains of sin. And we're set free from trying to justify ourselves before God by the law because we've experienced the grace of God. And he didn't want the Galatians or us to miss that. However, Paul also didn't want the Galatians, and he didn't want us to also miss the primary purpose of that freedom, which is to serve one another in love, to really leverage our freedom for the good of others and not for ourselves. 
See, what Paul realized also is, man, immature and young believers, you know, young Christians, very easily intoxicated and just enamored by the newfound freedoms they have in Christ. Back then, just like they are today. You know, he, he knew that as a young believer, it's very easy to get kind of fixated on all the benefits and all the, you know, freedoms you have in Christ and to really focus on protecting and guarding those more than really focusing on other people. And Paul didn't want the Galatians to do this and he didn't want us to do this because what Paul knew, and guys, this, this next part's key. What Paul knew is that as you mature as a follower of Christ, your normal way of thinking about and relating to your freedoms, that begins to change. And as a result, you start asking different kinds of questions as it relates to your freedoms. You move from constantly asking questions like, what do I have the freedom to do? To asking questions like, what freedoms do I need to limit for the sake of others? Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing what your freedoms are. You ought, you ought to know what your freedoms are. But that's not your primary thing you're worried about, thinking about as you walk with God. You, you know, great, freedoms. But which ones do I need to limit for the sake of others? And where did Paul get this perspective that he talked about in so many of his letters, this idea of and lifestyle of choosing to limit our freedoms if it would be strategic for the sake of others to really bless them? Well, he got it from the example of Jesus himself. You know, the very person who had poured out grace on Paul to begin with as he began to follow him. And he talks about this in a lot of different passages, two of which I'll, I'll show you, you know, in 2 Corinthians 8 9 and Philippians 2. You know, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, Christ chose to forgo a lot of freedoms and a lot of the riches he had so that you and I might actually be able to experience some of the riches that he had. But how did he do that? What did that look like? Well, Paul talks about that a little bit more in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, where he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was that mindset? Well, he says right here, he says, who being a very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, when, what Paul is saying here is that, you know, even though that Jesus had the rights and the power of God, he never leveraged that for himself. You know, he never leveraged the power of the God card for his own convenience or for his own popularity or for his own comfort. He, he never did that. But instead, he chose to forgo those freedoms. He chose to forgo those rights. They took on the very nature of a servant. And why did he do that? Because he knew that that was the most strategic way to really connect with you and I so that we could be drawn to him and have a relationship with him. See, Paul understood this, and not only did he understand this, but he had personally experienced this by the grace of God. And so over time, this countercultural way of thinking, of limiting his freedoms for the sake of others, that became a lifestyle of Paul. And Paul talk, begins to talk about some of the examples of how he began to do this in you know, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was another letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And, and this church is a very interesting church. It's a very young, very gifted church but a very confused church about a lot of things. You know, they, they, they were very confused about all the gifts and all the um, freedoms that they had in Christ and how to exercise those and what to do and what not to do. 
And so Paul writes them a letter to answer some of their questions, and they kind of straighten them out of some things. And one of the freedoms that the church was first arguing about was related to food sacrificed to idols. See, back then, there was these Christians that came out of Corinth. They, they, they came out of and were still continually surrounded by a very pagan society that would regularly offer food to all sorts of you know, idols around them. And oftentimes, if they went to go buy food in the marketplace, particularly if they went to go buy meat in the marketplace, um, or if they were going to a friend's house and there was meat served, it would be pretty often that that meat was probably previously sacrificed to an idol. So the problem arose then is, could these Christians eat the food or could they not? Well, there were some Christians, including Paul, that said, hey, you know what? Idols, like, idols are nothing. You know, they're not real guys anyway. And there's only one God, and he said that we're free to eat anything, so it's fine. And then there was other people that they had, were Christians, that they had been so steep into idol worship previously before coming to Christ that they just could not get themselves to see eating that meat as not being something that was wrong, that was something that was sinful. And so what were they to do? You know, were they to exercise the right to eat meat and just tell these other Christians, hey, get over it. You know, just eat the food, you know. Well, Paul's example and encouragement to them was this in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I mean, that just makes me, I want to follow Jesus right there. I don't know. Like, I mean, how much do you like meat? Um, so I will not cause them to fall. What Paul is saying is, I am willing to even be a vegetarian at times, if need be, in order to not make my brothers or sisters feel tempted to eat meat and stumble in their faith. I mean, you talk about going the distance, you know. And then another freedom that Paul chose to limit was his, actually his right to get married. In, in 1 Corinthians 9.5, he, he writes, Don't we have the right to take on a believing wife along with us? And to do, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas, which is, you know, just another name for Peter. Um, you know, what Paul's saying here is, guys, I, as an apostle, I have the right to get married. It's not that I don't have the right to get married. Just like the other apostles have a right to get married, I have a right to get married too. So why didn't he exercise that right? Was it because Paul just couldn't get a date? And goes, yeah, I'm just not exercising my right to get married. That's what it is. Oh, come on. You know. No, that's not why he did it. You know. But see, when you look at the life of Paul, when you look at the pace of ministry that he kept, when you look at all the different dangerous places that he went, and, and you look at what he wrote about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 and his view on some of that, um, it becomes pretty clear that Paul really thought, honestly, what's probably going to be most strategic for the mission of seeing people really come to Christ is probably that I stay single, at least in my circumstance. And um, he probably thought that he'd be able to move around easier and just give much more folks attention to really help people come to Christ if he stayed single. So he chose not to exercise that right. And then a third freedom Paul chose not to exercise was to expect payment from those that he ministered to. Even though according to 1 Corinthians 9, 14, he actually totally had that right. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 14 to 15, he says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used, these, but I have not used any of these rights. Instead, what Paul would do is he'd often he would make tents and he'd sell them so that he could pay the bills. Well, there's other times that a church in another city would give him money so he would have finances to go minister in another city and preach the gospel there. And then towards the end of 1 Corinthians 9, after giving all these different examples, Paul decides, you know, I, I need to just kind of summarize my whole 
my whole perspective, my whole lifestyle on what it means to really uh, live for the sake of others so that these Corinthians get it, and a little did he know so that we would be able to get it and use this later down the road. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 23, it's kind of a summary thought here. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's the motive. That's why he's doing this. To the Jews, I became a, like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might, have, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. How about that for a memory verse for this next week? You know, that's a long one. Yeah. Um, we actually did memorize that this past summer. But, um, now, there's a lot in this passage to unpack, uh, and, and we're not going to unpack it all. But I, what I, for the purpose of tonight, what I want you to see is just this overarching message that Paul says in here. You know, Paul is not compromising his obedience or his allegiance to Christ. I mean, that's, that's not at all what he's saying here. He's saying, no, no, that is a given. But everything else, it's on, it's on the table to potentially do with or do without, depending on whether it's more strategic for the sake of others. That they would begin to know Jesus and walk with him. Now, now you may be wondering, as you read this, as I thought about when I first kind of read it, like, is Paul just like a super chill guy? You know, that like, yeah, you know, say la vie, with or without, yeah, you know, it's like, no, like, as you begin to look at the Apostle Paul's life, as you begin to look at what he wrote and how he acted, he was anything but that kind of guy. I mean, Paul was pretty type A kind of guy. Like, he knew what he wanted, and it needed, you know, there's a way it probably should go. But what Paul also knew is that when he was interacting with non-Christians, or even with other believers, he knew that if someone was going to be, have to be inconvenienced and have to lay down some of their rights so that there weren't barriers between him and the other person to relate rightly or for them to be able to know Jesus and take steps forward, there's going to be Paul. And he was able to do that by God's grace because he had received God's grace himself. And as Paul walked with God, what was on God's heart became what was on Paul's heart, namely people. And so over time, no freedom was too valuable to lay down for the sake of people. No freedom was too valuable to lay down for the sake of people. Now, if I just stopped right there, you'd all be like, amen. No, if I just stopped right there and you knew nothing else about Paul's life, you would probably wrongfully come to the conclusion that although Paul really, man, he really sacrificed his freedom for the sake of others, that Paul kind of did that to his own demise. And while others really enjoyed their lives, Paul just sort of had to, you know, put up with his life, you know, rather begrudgingly. But honestly, nothing could be further from the truth. Because, you know, Paul by no means had an easy life, as you look at what happened in his life, but he had a really joyful life. In fact, there's no one, just like there's no one that wrote more extensively about the grace of God in the Bible, there's also no one that wrote more extensively about joy than the Apostle Paul. And why was that? Well, it's because Paul had a joyful life, you know? It's because joy is something that comes from God. And as you see up here, I'll give you a definition. Joy is really a pervasive sense of well-being. 
that does not have its source and its circumstances uh, in, the, in the circumstances of life, but it has its source in God. See, as Paul walked with God, who happens to be the most joyful person in all the universe, Paul really began to experience joy in his own life. And sometimes that joy came very directly through God. God would just use, I mean, I, I did a whole research paper on this in seminary. Um, was, the paper was, you know, pretty terrible, but the information was really helpful on, on just the joy the theme of joy throughout the Apostle Paul. And one of the things you see is sometimes the joy came directly from God. Sometimes the joy just came very indirectly from God through the lives of the people that Paul ministered to as he laid down his freedoms for them. And was it hard? Yeah, it was hard. Was it worth it? You bet. You know, did he experience really joy? Absolutely. You know. And that's something we're still called to do as Christians today. Now, if you think, as you're hearing this, you think, that's pretty radical thought, Jeremy. Like, I don't know about that. You're not alone. You know, I, I'd be willing to wager that all the seniors in here that are on ministry team, if you ask their freshmen selves, you know, if they thought something like this was a radical thought, they would all say, yep, yeah, I do. But if you ask the seniors in this room that are on ministry team today, which, by the way, if you're a senior on ministry team, can you raise your hand just so people know who you are? There you go. Got a little cluster up here, a little few back here, and some in the back corner there. I'm say, ask these people. I dare you, ask them. If you ask them, you know, are you experiencing more joy and purpose and meaning in your life now or when you were a freshman? I guarantee you they'd say now. But what's also interesting is if you ask those same people, are you laying down your freedoms more now or when you're a freshman? They say, oh, definitely now. And why is that? It's because those two things are connected. Joy really comes as you begin to lay down your life for other people. See, when you begin to realize that you're not really living until you're really living for others, when you begin to finally realize that, then statements like the one that we looked at earlier from Jesus, where he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life from me will save it. Statements like that begin to finally make sense. And not only do they begin to make sense, but they begin to seem preferable. And not only do they seem preferable, but they begin, by the grace of God, they even actually seem doable. And so how do we get started in this? Well, let me give you, in the rest of our time here, let me give you three areas of life that I think you can begin to strategically limit your freedoms for the sake of others to really begin to set you on a course to really develop this as a lifestyle. The first one I'd say is limit your freedom of speech for the sake of others. How un-American. You know, maybe just how unhuman, I don't know. Um, you know, Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Friends, I, I think everything you say should be true. I just don't think everything that's true needs to be said. Right? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> everything you say should be true, but not everything that is true do you need to say. You know, it, it is really interesting in our country how we are at a climax and convergence where on the one hand, you know, people are doing their very best to exercise their freedom of speech to the hilt. But on the other hand, they've never been more hurt 
by people who are choosing to exercise their freedom of speech. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't exercise your freedom of speech, but what I'm saying is you want to be wise about how you exercise your freedom of speech. If what you're saying creates unnecessary barriers between you and the person that you're trying to influence for Jesus, then you would probably be better to exercise your right to be quiet than exercise your right to speak. Because what you're doing, when you choose to not exercise your right in a wrong way, what you do is you lose influence. You lose future influence with that person. And so ask yourself, is what I'm saying going to benefit the other person? Not just if what I'm saying is true. That ought to be step one. Yes, it should be true. But is it going to benefit the other person? And if it's not, maybe exercise your freedom to not speak and choose to limit that freedom. Secondly, choose to limit your freedom of preference for the sake of others. You know, it's amazing how Sometimes we guard our preferences as if they're on par with moral absolutes, you know? Um, but ask yourself, is exercising my preferences really accomplishing the mission that God's given me, or is it hindering it? It can be some things as simple as deferring on what you eat, you know? I want to eat here, they want to eat there, fine, we'll do that, you know? I want to meet in the morning, they want to meet in the afternoon, fine, we'll meet in the afternoon, you know? It can be simple things like that. It could also be more significant things like whether you choose to drink alcohol or not. You know, for information, I actually happen to like the bitter taste of beer. Just like I like the bitter taste of coffee. You know, maybe that's just my personality. I don't know. Maybe I'm a bitter guy. But I really like, you know, a strong ale. And just like I like a strong cup of black coffee. You know, I don't want any of that weak sauce, you know, cream and stuff in it. Um, And I also know that the Bible says, you know, I have the freedom if I'm of age, freshman, uh, if I'm of age and uh, to drink, you know, responsibly, if I want to, you know, assuming I don't get drunk. But yet, I don't exercise that freedom. You know why? Because I work with college students. College students, if you, if you don't know, which you probably do, happens to be probably the demographic in all the world that is most likely to abuse alcohol, you know, Given the amount of cautions and the amount of abuse that you guys have really hit it out of the park, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I want to set a different example for college students. Even if I don't choose to abuse alcohol, I don't want someone that I'm, you know, getting around that looks up to me and then they start drinking. And as a result, they can't handle it and they get, you know, hooked on it and drink way more than they should. I just don't want that to be part of my legacy. So I choose not to exercise that right. Plus, you know, I've still never met someone yet that said, you know what, my grades were falling apart, my relationships were in shambles, and my life was empty, and then I started drinking. It's all turned around, you know? It's like, no, I mean, I've never met anyone like that. In fact, I've met, unfortunately, a lot of people have said the opposite. Third, and last example, limit your freedom of affluence and comfort for the sake of others. You know, you have the freedom to make a lot of money and spend it all on yourself. Right now, you probably just have the freedom to spend a lot of your parents' money on yourself. But, you know, you have that freedom. But you also have the freedom not to. So why not instead choose to go without some things? Like maybe you don't eat out as much. You know, maybe you don't buy as much clothes or you don't go to that extra concert or whatever it is so that you have a little bit more money to really be able to bless people with. 
and to be able to serve people around you or to give to ministries or churches that are really helping further the gospel and help people know Jesus. Or when you graduate, it might even be strategic to take a job that you make less money at or you work less hours maybe if it would free you up more to really help others really come to know Jesus. You know, that's something actually our, our staff does here at Challenge. We have part-time and we have full-time staff people. Our part-time staff people, they work full-time jobs outside of Challenge in, in their various fields of, of work. And then after work, they come and spend time with you guys and they meet with you guys. Now, they probably can make a whole lot more money, you know, if they chose to not work with Challenge, you know, or at very least, they could be much more comfortable just to go home and relax after a long day of work. But they choose not to. They choose to come and spend time with you guys. Or the full-time staff, we, we choose to, you know, forego higher-paying jobs in the marketplace. And we raise our own support so that we can spend time with you guys and help you grow and learn how to walk with Jesus. We choose to forego that right. But I say that not at all so you feel sorry for us. In fact, the complete opposite. You know, we love it. You know, <laughs> one person loves it. Um, and honestly, guys, I, 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 I'm being serious. You know, don't, don't tell my supporters, but I, I'm being serious. Ex except for the fact that my, you know, my wife and kids have grown accustomed to sleeping indoors and like, you know, eating food every day. You know, it's like, come on, step up. Um, I do it for free, you know. Because it's a joy to do. It's not like a, oh, woe is me kind of thing. It's a joy. And the reason it's a joy is because by the grace of God, real life is found as you limit your freedoms for the sake of others. So let's begin to do that, you know, each other. And I think as you do, not only are you going to find, man, you're really living in the grace of God and you're really enjoying your life, but you're going to bless people around you and honestly, that, that's where the real joy is found, guys. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to invite the band back up. God, um, <clears throat> that really does seem very counterintuitive that to gain our life, we would lay it down for others. And God, but that's exactly what you did, and that's exactly what you did through the Apostle Paul. And God, that's what we're called to do. And so I really do pray that for those of us that have never done that, and that just seems too crazy and naive, <clears throat> I really do pray that they would at least try it. They would at least begin to trust you. They would, uh, until they have their own story, they would trust the stories of people like Jesus and Paul and the, the staff and the seniors here that could say, I've done it. I'm doing it, and it's worth it. And God, I pray that they would begin to do that too. And God, for those of us um, that have begun to try to do that more, I pray that that would not be something we'd ever stop. But God, that that would be a natural lifestyle, and that would be a rhythm that you would see through the people of challenge and spread throughout the rest of the university and the world. A people that are, by the grace of God, laying down their freedoms for the sake of others and having a blast doing it. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening on the USC Christian Challenge podcast. 
You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms where you can also give us a review. We meet in person every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. in TCC 450 on the campus of the University of Southern California. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you there. Get involved and find out more about us, upcoming events, and weekly small groups on our Instagram page, at USC Challenge, and on our website, uscchristianchallenge.com. See you next week.